Today from the Global Lane, stealing the election USA, postal workers backdating mail-in ballots, contested ballots counted, others destroyed. We're seeing these irregularities all over the place. Bye-bye Israel and more money for Iran? Reversing Trump in the Middle East. It's likely that Biden may actually try to undo uh, some of the gains Trump has made in the region. 90% success rate on the brink of a COVID-19 vaccine. It's a game changer. And stressed out over an uncertain election. What we all should be praying. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. No evidence of vote fraud in this election? There's plenty at this point. An election training video in Detroit, hashtag Detroit Leaks, shows that ballot counters were instructed to enter challenge ballots into vote tabulating machines in Wayne County. Normally, challenge ballots would be set aside and not counted. And White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany told Sean Hannity this week that the Trump campaign has 234 pages of sworn affidavits from witnesses alleging vote fraud. They are alleging this is one county, Wayne County, Michigan. They are saying that there was a batch of ballots where 60% had the same signature. They are saying that 35 ballots uh, had no voter record, but they were counted anyway. That 50 ballots were run multiple times through a tabulation machine. Uh, that one woman said her son was deceased, but nevertheless somehow voted. In Nevada, at least 10,000 non-residents were allowed to send in ballots for counting there. And what about Pennsylvania and other states? Well, here to share some evidence is Neil McCabe. He's communications director at Project Veritas. Neil, thanks for your time. So I know your organization and James O'Keefe are known for your many undercover videos. We've shown portions of them over the years. Now, you've received more than 12,000 tips about fraud this time. Some from whistleblowers afraid to come forward. So tell us what you've discovered overall. Well, you know, Gary, it, we've received, as you said, thousands and thousands of phone calls and emails, and we're sifting through all of them. We're, uh, we have a special team of people dedicated to make sure that we, you know, we sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, but we do have very important whistleblowers who have come forward. Two postal workers in Travis City, Michigan, confirmed to us that late ballots were being collected, sorted separately, so that they could be postmarked November 3rd. And these are late ballots that came in after Election Day. Richard Hopkins, who is a mail carrier in Erie, Pennsylvania, he came forward with a similar account. He said that he overheard his postmaster rebuking a supervisor because one of the late ballots that came in was postmarked November 4th instead of the 3rd. Now, Hopkins said he heard this on the morning of November 5th. Now, Hopkins originally spoke to us with a disguised voice and a blurred face. Eventually, he decided he wanted to come on the record with his own name, and so he did that. He also swore out an affidavit, which was submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee and acknowledged by Cal uh, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham as being a keystone document in his investigation into election fraud. Since then, uh, Hopkins has received tremendous pressure to change his account, and he endured more than three hours of an interrogation from an agent from the Post Office Inspector General Office who was flown in from New York City, Gary, to basically work him over and to, quote, update, unquote, his statement.
Okay. Uh, this Inspector General, go ahead. Okay, Neil, I want to show a clip of that right now because we have a clip that you guys uh, provided. So here it is. It's getting you crazy, right? And it's, it's out of a lot of people's control. And so the reason they called me in is to try to harness that storm, try to reel it back in before it gets really crazy. We like to control our mind, and when we do that, we can convince ourselves of a memory. I'm not scaring you, but I am scaring you. Neil, the Washington Post reported that after that federal interrogation, Hopkins recanted his story, but Hopkins later released a video saying that's not true. So what's going on here? Is Hopkins believable? Yeah, Gary, I think if you go back to that Washington Post story, you'll see that they have updated their headline and their story to include Hopkins' statement. What Hopkins said is that he was worked over. He was, they gave him fear and anxiety. They told this guy, Richard Strasser, who was from the IG's office at the post office headquarters in New York, he told him that he was going to be in trouble because he could be accused of deception because he raised more than $130,000 on a GoFundMe page. Now, Hopkins was very anxious. He was uh, very concerned. Strasser told him, the only way I can protect you is that you sign this statement to amend what you said before. Now, Hopkins didn't have a lawyer present. He didn't have a union rep present. He thought that Strasser was trying to protect him, and he signed it. Now, after he signed it, Hopkins asked for a copy of the document. Strasser said, I can't give you a copy of it because it is part of an ongoing investigation. The next thing Hopkins knows, he's put on administrative leave without pay, and that document that Strasser said he couldn't have a copy of was released by House Democrats with the headline that Hopkins admitted that he lied. Hopkins did not lie. Hopkins stands by his account and he recorded the more than two hours or three hours that he was in that room with Strasser. Also, I want to get to Michigan in a minute, but another one in Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, you found destroyed ballots, and then the director of the elections there verified the authenticity <clears throat> of those ballots, so they weren't fake. Tell us about that. Why is it worrisome? Our project uh, Veritas journalists were poking around Bucks County they went to a closed election center that had been opened to handle sort of the flux from election day. They saw the bags of trash. They said, hey, let's just grab these bags of trash, take them back to the hotel and see what's in it. They opened it up. They found roughly a dozen ballots that were what they call spoiled ballots. And many of them have been ripped up by hand Pennsylvania state law says that spoiled ballots must, must be kept under lock and key for 22 months, and they are part of any recount, so that inspectors conducting the recount can verify whether they indeed are spoiled or not. Obviously, if there's a recount in Pennsylvania, spoiled ballots thrown in the garbage are not going to be part of that, and obviously it was a violation of law. We're seeing these irregularities all over the place, Gary. Yeah, yes, Neil, and of course there's no evidence of any widespread fraud here, but we've got plenty of uh, examples. Let's go back to Michigan. Poll watchers in Detroit say thousands of mail-in ballots were counted from people who were not properly registered. At least 10,000 mail-in ballots were returned from dead people. 
And here's a, uh, a whistleblower, right, a short clip from your uh, video of a post office in Traverse City, Michigan, the Barlow branch. You issued a directive this morning to collect any ballots we find in mailboxes, collection boxes, just outgoing mail in general, separate them at the end of the day so that they could uh, hand stamp them with the previous day's date. Today is November 4th for clarification. We spoke to a second mailman and also in Traverse City, Michigan. He did not want to come on a recorded line with us, but he confirmed his account saying that the same thing was happening in his post office. Listen, Gary, with so much of this election and so many of these ballots being passed through the post office, the integrity of the post office has a direct relationship to the integrity of the election itself. Okay, you're asking for more whistleblowers, others who've witnessed the vote fraud to get in touch with Project Veritas. How can they do that, Neil? The best way to get in touch with us is at veritastips at protonmail.com. Okay, Neil McCabe of Project Veritas, thank you for your time and insights today. Thanks for having me on, Gary. If Joe Biden becomes our 46th president, how will he handle Iran in the Middle East? Now, president Trump removed the United States from the Iran nuclear deal. He imposed stricter sanctions. He also ordered the killing of chief Iranian terrorist Qasem Soleimani. Well, joining us with some insights on possible Biden administration Iran policy is Foundation for Defense of Democracy's senior fellow, Benham Ben Taliblu. Ben, uh, Biden's website says he returned the USA to the Iran nuclear deal. So what would that mean? Well, great to be with you. In fact, I believe uh, then-candidate Joe Biden uh, penned an op-ed in CNN uh, this September uh, talking about uh, compliance for compliance, that Joe Biden would return to the JCPOA, the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, if Iran returned to compliance. The real kicker here is there is an intent to return, but what capability do we have? If Joe Biden doesn't want to deliver premature sanctions relief or pallets of cash, like the administration he served in, or he doesn't want war, which both him and Trump don't want, the really tool, the really only option that he has left with is his predecessor, Donald Trump's economic sanctions. So there is this question of how do you incentivize Iran to return so that if you are the U.S. and want to return, you can do so as well. That's a big question mark that I don't think his advisors nor him have publicly weighed in on in detail. And Ronald Reagan always said, trust but verify. So. Wouldn't it be a bit harder now to return to the deal because of the tighter sanctions that uh, Trump has imposed? Well, it'd be much tougher to return to the deal for many reasons. The sanctions are one, but honestly, Iranian bad behavior is another. And perhaps maybe the third and most important is that the JCPOA, even though the U.S. left it in May 8, 2018, the Iranians and the Europeans have continued to act like that ghost of a deal still is alive and still in force. And what that means is, uh, in October, uh, at the U.N. level, the international arms embargo lapsed on Iran. Now, the U.S. has an executive order blocking uh, Iranian weapons transfers or imports. Uh, but if a Joe Biden administration wants to go back into the deal, they could easily lift that executive order. So there's a different nuclear reality, different nuclear facts on the ground today as Iran's program has expanded. And of course, there's a different international reality. So uh, a potential Biden administration is going to face an uphill battle even dealing with Iran. Well, and the different reality, of course, in the Middle East, how would our allies in the Persian Gulf, the Sunni regimes, handle that? After all, we've seen several of them uh, sign a peace deal with Israel. How would they view this? I think it's, it's really prescient that you mentioned the Abraham Accords and the growing 
kind of wave of normalization between Arab states and Israel. Uh, and that's because they may see this relationship with Israel as a very important hedge. If the perception is that the U.S. is on its way out, that the Iranians are rising, who is the only other regional power that has been able to check and roll back and contain Iranian power? And the question is quite clear. Over the past decade, you see the, some of the Arab regimes, particularly in the Persian Gulf, deprioritize the Palestinian issue as the threat from Iran has grown considerably. Now, that necessarily draws them towards Israel. Now, one hopes bonds uh, form between them that are not just driven in that mutual shared security concern, but we can't ignore how important that security concern is, has been for driving some of these regional peace agreements. Well, you mentioned the Palestinians now. What if Biden returns us to funding of the Palestinians and other funding that Trump cut off? How likely is that that Biden would return to that? Well, I'm not an expert in uh, Palestinian politics, but I do see an unfortunate trend rising. And this trend has been with us in the U.S. really since the end of the Cold War. And it's the political incentive to do the exact opposite on your predecessor, particularly on executive branch issues and philosophical issues. George H.W. Bush had realism as his governing foreign policy uh, agenda, and uh, Bill Clinton reversed that with two uh, two terms of uh, international internationalism and liberalism. Then you had George Bush campaign for a more humble foreign policy, but after 9-11, really an overextension of the U.S., particularly through democratization uh, in the Middle East. You had Obama roll that back and achieve that 2015 nuclear deal. Then you had Trump reverse the 2015 nuclear deal and revert uh, to some of those more traditional allies we had in the region. So it's likely that Biden may actually try to undo uh, some of the gains Trump has made in the region. It's unclear how that may uh, flesh out with the respect to the Palestinians here. But I think a return to the 2015 Iran nuclear deal and a return to the Paris climate deal uh, is something they're seeking. So if there's something at the executive branch that they can do easily, uh, it, it could actually be within the realm of possibility. And, and I'm sure Israel is very concerned about this, uh, everything unraveling, uh, because obviously they did not have a good experience with the Obama administration. Your thoughts on that? And that's unfortunate because the U.S. and Israel do see eye to eye on so much. And really, there's not just shared values, but there's shared interests in the region when it comes to stability, when it comes to the free flow of energy, and really when it comes to not letting Iran get a nuclear weapon. So one hopes that politics can be put aside uh, in 2021 and beyond, and uh, these states can actually focus on some of these uh, shared security and other uh, goals in the region. Um, one has to be aware, of course, that the Iranians are quite adept at exploiting cleavages, and they may want to flesh out some of these cleavages in the international community. Uh, when the U.S. left the nuclear deal, Iran tried to isolate the U.S., um, and Iran benefited immensely from that spat between uh, Netanyahu and Obama um, in 2014 and 15. Okay. Benham Ben senior fellow at FDD. Thank you, Ben, for your time and insights. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. There's good news on the home front concerning a coronavirus vaccine. The Pfizer drug company has announced initial testing of its vaccine shows promising success in preventing viral infection. Preliminary results show a 90% prevention effectiveness rate among trial volunteers who received the vaccine. Well, here with more is former Food and Drug Administration Associate Commissioner Peter Pitts. Mr. Pitts is co-founder of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. Peter, it's good to have you with us again. So certainly this is good news about the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine. 90% is amazing uh, compared to other vaccines. Your thoughts about it. When do you expect we'll see final FDA approval? 90% is 
effectiveness from a vaccine for any vaccine is amazing. But when that vaccine is for COVID-19, it's a game changer. Clearly, there's still a lot of data to be given to the FDA for review. But I think that we could have a emergency use authorization for Pfizer, you know, potentially before Thanksgiving, certainly before the end of the year. And that means that we can begin to inoculate healthcare workers and essential workers. And then after that, probably early in 2021, we can roll it out to older Americans and people with underlying serious healthcare conditions, and of course, everybody else. And I think that the 90% number is good for lots of reasons. One, it's going to work. It's highly effective. But also, I think that's going to influence people as to the value and importance of vaccinations in general, and especially for COVID-19. We've got to get the vaccination rates up above 60% for the general population if we really want to get the job done. 90% really is an astounding uh, percentage. It's, it's the holy grail when it comes to vaccines. And I think what it tells us is the new, type, new types of technologies that we're talking about, mRNA, for example, messenger RNA, which is how the Pfizer vaccine is manufactured, allows us to manufacture these vaccines safer, faster, uh, less expensively, and we can scale up globally more quickly. So we're really hitting all of our uh, bases here relative to what needs to get done. Many people still say they won't get the vaccine. Just how safe do you expect it to be? What about potential long-term health risks? I'm very uh, excited and very positive about the safety profile of the Pfizer vaccine. The FDA is really doing its job. They're demanding two months' worth of data, uh, which is a little more than is generally uh, expected. And that's, I think, a good thing, considering the, the severity of the pandemic and the importance of a vaccine. If people don't think they should get vaccinated, they need to listen to the facts protect themselves, their families, their communities, uh, their states, and our, and our nation. Unless we all get behind this and get vaccinated, it's not going to have the desired robust effect of stomping COVID-19 to the ground and allowing us to return to normal activity on a regular basis. You know, I think the 90% rate will convince people it's the right thing to do. I think that putting all of our politics aside and doing the right thing is crucial here. We've got to all get vaccinated and as early as possible. And by the way, that also holds true for the flu. What do you think of Joe Biden's choices to lead his advisory group on COVID-19, Drs. David Kessler, Vivek Murthy, and Marcella Nunez-Smith? I think they're good choices. You know, these are people that really know their business. I would have liked to have seen a, a smoother transition. In other words, some of the people currently on the president's uh, COVID-19 task force uh, could have been engaged, but I guess there are political issues that are making that difficult. But I think that the team that Joe Biden has put together is a solid team. They're going to do the right thing. They recognize the importance of vaccinations and the alacrity of getting people vaccinated and convincing people and educating people as to the safety of vaccines. I think we've got to talk to communities of color. They have traditional suspicions of government-run healthcare programs. We've got to deal with that respectfully. We've got to deal with people that don't think that vaccines are really that important. We've got to educate them. And for the people that don't believe in vaccines, who think that they're dangerous, I think we've got to talk to them as well. We've got a big public education effort ahead of us. And I hope that Joe Biden talks about that sooner rather than later, because a community, a nation that's excited about the vaccine will get vaccinated, and a nation that has suspicions won't. We have to make sure that every American wants to get vaccinated and as quickly as possible. I'm going to be the first one in line when I'm available to get a vaccine. And what do you think of a possible federal government mandate for mask wearing? I think he can certainly do it. I don't think it's going to be effective. You can't make people do things they don't want to do. We have to convince people that it's the responsible thing to do to wear masks, to maintain proper social distancing, and to practice enhanced personal hygiene. Unless they're going to hire you know, a million new police officers to write people tickets wearing masks, it's not going to happen. But there is value, obviously, in using the bully pulpit 
to convince people, to cajole people, to plead with people, to ask people to please wear masks because it's the right thing to do. And it is. I would hate to see uh, the movement towards a federal mandate further create polarization in our nation relative to uh, the science behind mask wearing. And how about the future of national health insurance and Obamacare under a Biden presidency? The Supreme Court will be deciding the law's constitutionality now that there's no insurance mandate. So what might happen? The Supreme Court is not going to rule uh, the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, uh, unconstitutional. I think that, pre that President-elect Biden, soon to be President Biden, you know, if that holds up, will certainly try to amend it because time marches on. Obviously, there are problems with the ACA, big problems. Hopefully, as one of the designers of the, of the legislation, he can see that and try to make it better. Okay, former FDA Associate Commissioner Peter Pitts, thank you for your expertise and for sharing your insights. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So you say you're a bit stressed about the uncertainty of this election? Folks, we knew this chaos and uncertainty was coming. Many experts warned us that mail-in balloting would be a mess. And like Al Gore, who challenged the election results for 37 days after the election in 2000, President Trump is due his day in court. So what are you praying? Are you praying for Trump to be sworn in on January 20th or for Joe Biden to be victorious when all the legal battles, vote counts and recounts are finished? I know God will have his way. He's not a Democrat or a Republican, but I think he may be a bit libertarian because after all, he does give us free will to make our own choices in life, to love or reject him. So let's freely pray that God's will be done in America as it is in heaven. No matter who is finally declared the winner, pray that America embraces unity and experiences a peaceful transition. Pray that God shines his light on the darkness and that fraud and corruption are exposed, that godliness and